Church at this time. <clears throat> Appreciate uh, Evans working with them. Bye. We'll see you. Okay. Don't be so happy about leaving, but. <laughs> All right. We may not return, but okay. All right. Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Matthew chapter 5. Grateful to have you here in church with us today. Once in a while, I certainly never mean to offend or uh, try to cause any kind of conflict or, or uh, any issues, but I like to address things that are going on in our culture. And this last week, during the Super Bowl, they aired a commercial that you might have seen called He Gets Us. I don't know if you've seen it or not. It's based on the fact that Jesus washed feet when he came, when he was on earth. It begins with a man, a series of images. I don't know if you've seen it, I'll just kind of break it down, but a man washing another man's feet, and then a, a police officer washing a black man's feet, and then a professional lady washing a uh, kind of crazy-haired girl's feet, and uh, then a white guy washing an Indian, American Indian's feet, a lady, uh, a professionally dressed lady washing a girl's feet in front of an abortion clinic, a white lady then washing a Hispanic lady's feet, and then a Muslim, another one doing a Muslim girl's, and then the minister watch, washing the feet of a young man who's obviously gay. And then the words, after a few others as well, words come up on the screen, Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet, he gets us. Now, I will allow that I'm sure this came from sincerity, uh, not uh, not from a bad place or somebody, but I do take issue with the premise of that commercial because the Bible gives an altogether different picture. Whose feet did Jesus wash in the Bible? Did he wash the feet of the harlots? Did he wash the feet of the skeptics or uh, the deniers or Pilate? Uh, he did not. It was a disciples' feet that he washed. It was those that were in close fellowship with him. And one of the, the problems, I believe, with the modern Jesus movement is you, you'll always notice grace always goes to the left. Uh, it always uh, tries to accept the changes of culture. And the, the, the truth of the matter is that grace is always a result of repentance. We repent, and God gives us his grace. Who in that commercial repented? No one repented. Uh, the idea that we should love and accept sinners 100% is at the heart of the gospel. We always should love and accept sinners. However, the idea that we should accept and embrace their sin is a whole different story, and that is biblical heresy. There is a, this, this is a cultural movement in the modern church today that gives me a bit of cause for concern because there still is, in the Word of God, a call for holiness. There still is an expectation for us to live righteous lives. Now today, we're going to talk about the law, and we're going to talk about grace, and we're going to talk about how those fit together. And as a student of, you could say, the art of preaching, uh, I read books on preaching, I love to hear different preachers and study it, I find the structure of the Sermon on the Mount extraordinary. It begins with the Beatitudes, it's an insight to the character of those who please God, and the way that we should live. Next, uh, Jesus gives two brilliant metaphors about salt and light. That talks about if we live the Beatitudes, then the impact that will make in the world around us, in the people around us, as we live them. 
And then in verses 17 through 20, the passage we're about to read, Jesus gives the purpose of his ministry. He shows us the importance of applying God's word in our lives. There are some passages in scripture that we can skim over. I don't know if this is your, if you ever deal with this. I do this all the time when I'm reading my Bible and I start and I'm reading it. I've been about through the second page of reading and I realize I haven't thought about one thing I'm reading. You ever been there before? I've thought about the weather. I've thought about the latest goings on. I've thought about what I have to do that day. And this has all just been in one eye and out the other as I'm reading the Bible. Uh, but today, I don't want to skim over this part because we would miss some of the rich truths that are within it. And hopefully we can see some of those this morning. Look at Matthew 5, starting at verse number 17. Jesus is preaching here, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall be in no wise passed from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case, in no case, enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about this today. Father, I pray you'd use your word, make it clear to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message today is Righteous Lawbreakers. Righteous Lawbreakers. It's sort of a, a bit of a, a backward statement because how can you be a lawbreaker and righteous at the same time? I carry in my Bible, uh, in, in uh in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So in that page in my Bible for years, I have carried a little slip of paper. It is uh, something that was cut out by a loving friend and given to me out of the Brookings newspaper. This is what it says. Ivan Gregory Yoder, 42 of 1602 First Street, speeding on other roadways, fined $85. So I keep that just in case that I think too highly of myself, I can be reminded for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. On that day, a few years ago, I was a lawbreaker. Now, it'll warm your heart. I have not broken the law since. Um, I'm sorry, they haven't caught me breaking the law since, <laughs> all right? But I was not righteous that day. I broke the law. It does not matter that I was on my way speeding to save a van load of grandmothers getting carjacked, I broke the law. I did wrong. But today I want to show you a whole passel of law breakers that at the same time can be called righteous. It's a wonderful truth of Scripture. We start here with the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, he says, but to fulfill them. We have heard that over the years in church, we, we hear it over and over, but I hope to show you really what that means today because the terms, uh, the law and the prophets, by the way, that refers to basically the Bible that they had. It refers to the main divisions of the Old Testament. You had the law, you had the prophets, you also, a third one would be the Psalms. Uh, the law is that system of legislation that was given by God to Moses uh, to give to the nation of Israel. 
The entire body of the law is found in Exodus 20 through 31 and in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the one we're the most familiar with, the ones that kind of sum all of them up, is found in Exodus chapter 20, and we call it the Ten Commandments. We're very familiar or more familiar with the Ten Commandments. Now, to be clear, the law was not given for salvation. A person is not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Uh, let me say that again. A person is not saved by the keeping of the Ten Commandments. The Bible says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Nobody will be saved by keeping the law. By the way, you can't anyway. So that's the kind of the point it's making there. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I have here uh, a glass of water that I prepared about a week ago, and it is uh, um, not pure. It's got some dirt in it. But you look at it, and it's, uh, it's a little bit hazy, but it looks like I could maybe drink it and be safe. But I happen to know that there's dirt in this glass because I went outside and scraped some frozen dirt up and put it in the glass, okay? So I'm aware that there's dirt in there. But even though it kind of looks okay, uh, I know it's still dangerous to drink even though it's not that evident. But if I take this clean spoon and if I stir the water, all of a sudden it's going to become very evident that this is filthy. There's something disgusting in that water and nobody would want to drink it. The law is like this clean spoon. It's perfect in itself, uh, and its intent is to make evident that the uh, really the true nature within us. So the law, being perfect in itself, shows us that we might think we look good. We might feel pretty good about ourselves, especially when we compare ourselves to other people in the building, okay? We feel better about ourselves. And so this the law goes, and it stirs up. And it shows us, hey, you're not as good as you think you are. That's what the law does. If the law is designed to show people their sinfulness, then drive them to God for salvation. The law tells me how crooked I am, and then grace comes along and straightens me out. Amen. That Again, that's my issue with the commercial I was talking about a while ago. Because the law and the Bible, uh, they're not there... Grace is not about accepting you as you are. Grace is about accepting you as a person that Christ died for and changing the way that you are and making you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. There, And that's where the law comes in. The law, here's another scary part. Remember I said you can't get saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Well, this makes it even harder. The law exists as a whole. And if we break one command in the law, we're guilty of breaking the whole thing. James tells us that. In chapter 2, verse 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law. Now, just think about that for a while. I think of that woman that was praying one day. She said, Lord, today, so far, I have not lied. I have not gossiped. I have not been angry at anybody. I haven't had a bad attitude. But Lord, I'm about to get out of bed. And from here on out, I'm going to need your help. All right, try to keep the whole law for just a day. But he goes on to say, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. The law, see, okay, I understand we can't keep the law and, and uh, what happens because of it. Attached to the law 
is the penalty of death. Since we are all lawbreakers, we are all under the penalty of death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And so death is the penalty for breaking the law. God's righteousness and holiness demanded that the penalty for sin be paid. It was for this reason that Jesus Christ came into the world. He came to pay the penalty of mankind's sins because we would not be able to do so without spending eternity in hell uh, separated from God forever. And so that's the only way we can pay for our sins. Then he died as a substitute for guilty lawbreakers, even though he himself was sinless. You see, he could pay for our lawlessness because he was completely lawful. He kept the law perfectly. He did not wave the law aside. Uh, rather, he met the full demands of the law. That's why he said, I'm not come to destroy it. I'm come to fulfill it. He fulfilled its strict requirements in his life and also in his death. And so the gospel does not overthrow the law. The gospel supports the law. And in some places replaces it. I'm going to show you in a few minutes here. It shows how the law's demands have been fully satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. So Jesus says here, I come not to destroy the law. The Greek word katalo something is to mean utterly overthrow to obliterate completely. That's what the word original word means. It's interesting. It's the same word used to describe the destruction of the temple that Jesus was talking about. Jesus came not to obliterate the law. He came not to render it useless. So if Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, then what does then the Old Testament law still apply to us today? That's the second question that kind of arises from that. If Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, does the law apply to me? Well, let's break it down. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's three categories of uh, the law. Ceremonial civil, and moral. Now, the ceremonial law uh, related specifically to Israel's worship. Uh, consequently, those laws were no longer necessary uh, when after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. While we're no longer bound by ceremonial laws, the principles behind them still apply. For example, a New Testament principle that comes from the original Old Testament law, Mark chapter 12, verse 30, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And then you have the civil law, which was applied to daily living in Israel. Because our modern society is so different that uh, from that time, many times these laws just simply don't apply to us. They include everything from restitution for a man gored by an ox to how to sacrifice lambs. When's the last time you've had to make restitution for a man gored by your ox? It's just some of these things don't apply. Also, the sacrifice of lambs. And there's a lot of instruction given to the sacrifice of lambs, but you brought no lamb with you today so that we might slice its throat and, and uh, sacrifice it to the Lord. Our sacrifice has already been paid on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ, that perfect lamb of God. Jesus, of course, talks about the principles attached to this, and we'll get to them in the weeks to come. And then you have, thirdly, the moral law. This would be laws like the Ten Commandments. These are direct commands from God and it requires obedience. And the moral law reveals the nature of God and the will of God. And his moral laws absolutely still apply to us today. Stealing. 
homosexuality, incest, adultery, coveting, and a whole list of other things uh, laid out in the Ten Commandments, they're still wrong today. In fact, the only commandment from the Ten Commandments that was not reiterated in the New Testament was commandment number four, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath or the seventh day of the week. That was replaced when the Lord Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week, and when the church was established, they began to meet on the first day of the week. So the law, though, is still a standard for godly living. It reveals to me that I cannot measure up to God's standard. How do I know? Well, the law tells me that because I am unable to keep the law. Uh, no matter how hard we try, we're going to fail. But again, it ought to drive us to the cross of Christ. The Bible calls the law a schoolmaster. Now, our modern word would be a teacher. So the law is our teacher and but after salvation, the teacher is no longer needed. It's done its job. The Bible says in Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. You see, in that way, the law has shown us, hey, this is who you are. You can't do anything about it. You need Christ. And then that law that we know we're unable to keep and we're unable to, uh, it's unable to take us to heaven, that law drives us to Christ and then we no longer need a schoolmaster because now we've humbled ourselves and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. The cry of the world today is freedom to do anything you want and be anything you want. Again, I refer to that commercial that I just spoke about a while ago. Do and be anything you want and it's just fine with God. Live any way you want without any restrictions. True freedom, though, does not mean the absence of constraints or moral absolutes. True freedom is not absence from all constraints. Take, for example, skydiving. Who's ever went skydiving in here? A few of you, maybe? You are smart people. I haven't went either, all right? Uh, I like... Uh, I don't like going up high. The Bible says, lo, I am with you always. Amen? <laughs> Not up high, but low. So I want the Lord to be with me. I'll just stay down here. I've heard uh, somebody say, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving is probably not for you. Uh, but suppose a skydiver was up in the plane, 10,000 feet, he's ready to jump, and he says to the rest of his teammates there, hey, I'm not using a parachute this time. I want freedom. I don't want to be under the constraints of a parachute. I don't want any more restrictions. The fact is, as we all know, that skydiver is constrained by a law that is greater than him, and that is the law of gravity. So the law of gravity, uh, when, the, when the skydiver chooses the constraint of the parachute, then he can overcome the law of gravity and enjoy the fall, uh, the dive, whatever you call it. God's moral laws act the same way. They restrain, but they're absolutely necessary if we're going to enjoy the exhilaration of real freedom. God's laws are there to protect us from the pain and from the destruction of sinful living. He wants to uh, help you avoid all that pain. The, the, they, they point out what will harm us. Uh, God's laws show us the things that will bring destruction on us. <clears throat> so while a Christian is not technically under the law for salvation, he certainly ought not live lawless. He is bound by a stronger chain than the law. He is under the grace uh, or the law of Christ. 
our behavior is molded not by fear of punishment, but by a loving desire to serve our Savior. The love of Christ, Paul said, constraineth me. He was willingly constrained by it. When we focus on serving Him, we find fulfillment. Romans six seventeen. <clears throat> but God be thanked that ye who were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered from you. Now, I want to make a very important statement because this goes against the commercial I was just talking about, modern church thought. This goes against a lot of that, but I want you to catch this statement and realize uh, the meaning behind it. God's grace raises, not lowers, the standard of godly living. God's grace. See, what the world and worldly churches and modern uh, thought would tell you is that God's grace allows you to do whatever you want. It's all about grace. No, no, you'll always see in the Bible that grace raises the standard. It does not lower the standard. Let me give you an example. The law says do not murder. Anybody murdered anybody this week? All right, the law, the law says do not murder. Most of us have obeyed that one. But the, the grace, Jesus said, you can't hate. That's a little harder for us to obey, isn't it? Guess what happened? Grace just raised the standard. The law says don't murder. Grace says don't hate. And this is uh, even more difficult for us. And uh, in fact, it goes on further to say we're to love our enemies. Uh, we're to go the second mile for others. If somebody smites us on one side, uh, we're supposed to turn the other cheek, the Bible says. We're supposed to take punishment and love our enemies and do good to those that hate you. That, friends, is a raised standard from the law. All right, grace always does that. Grace takes us further than the law. 1 John 3.16, Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus obeyed the moral law completely and utterly. He was sinless. So how did Christ fulfill the law? Well, the predictions or prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 2, it says he would be born in Bethlehem, and he was born in Bethlehem. Psalm chapter 22 talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. He fulfilled all these predictions. But not only the predictions, but the payment for breaking the law was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law on the cross by satisfying the demands of the law when it was broken. Remember, the penalty for being a lawbreaker is death. And that's why the Jews offered sacrifice to the Lord. That's why they, uh, the, to atone for their sins. It wasn't that the lamb did anything for them. It was a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ would be on the cross for our sins. They looked forward. We look backward. So the entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to Jesus Christ. The offerings, uh, the temple, the tabernacle, the furnishings within it all pointed to Christ. The Old Testament sacrifice, uh, the, the sacrifices prepared the Jews for Jesus' death when he would die for the sins of the entire world. Christ could only make or pay the penalty for that sin because he was perfect, because he fulfilled the law. You see, we can't, I can't die for your sin because I broke the law, okay, that one time. <laughs> and so I can't, I can't die for your sin. Uh, God could though. Jesus could because he was perfect. He kept the law. He fulfilled it. And then the performance of the law was fulfilled by Christ. Jesus perfectly kept all the commands of the law. He was 
born under the law to fulfill all righteousness. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. He kept it. He kept the law perfectly. The purpose of Christ's mission on earth was to fulfill the word of God, and he fulfilled it. Praise God. A duck hunter was with a friend in the wide open plains of southwestern Georgia, southeastern Georgia. And while they were hunting, they noticed far off in the horizon a cloud of smoke. Soon they heard crackling as the wind shifted, and they realized about the worst thing you can have when you're out in a wide open space, a prairie fire was advancing, and it was so fast they would not be able to outrun it. So quickly he produced a book of matches and he started his own fire. And they uh, they let the fire burn a big, huge circle around them. <clears throat> and then there they stood, and they didn't have to wait long. They stood in the middle of this circle of blackened earth waiting for the fire to come. They covered their mouths with handkerchiefs and they uh, uh, braced themselves and the fire came near and it swept over them, but they were completely unharmed and untouched because fire would not pass where the fire had already passed. The law is like a brush fire. I cannot escape it. But if I stand in a burned over place, not a hair on my head will be singed. And friends, Jesus' death on the cross is that burned over place. He took my punishment and yours for us. The law is powerful, yet it is powerless over me today because he paid the, for the, he paid the cost, he paid the penalty of my uh, violation of the law. Because of the righteousness of Christ, uh, it has been, the Bible word is imputed. We could use the word credited to our account. Uh, his righteousness was credited to our account. So we are lawbreakers, but we are righteous. The Bible says we are justified. I love that word. We are declared righteous before God, justified. Justified, never sinned. That's what that word means. Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that, uh, so that puts the person who trusts in Christ, oh, I can't let go of my crime. Here, let me hold that and put it in here. Okay. So that puts the person who trusts in Christ no longer under the law, but now under grace. Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but you're under grace. The Christian is dead to the law through the work of Christ as far as penalty goes again. And uh, the penalty of the law only has to be paid one time, and it was on the cross of Calvary. Now, how you receive it is all up to you. And there has to come a point in time in your life where you say, hey, I realize I cannot do it on my own, and I accept his payment on my behalf. The Bible says in Romans 10, uh, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And many times I talk to people and ask about their salvation and, and they kind of, well, you know, I've always believed and, and uh, I've always been a Christian. Uh, if you asked me how old I was, 34, but if you asked me how old I was and I told you, you know what, I've always been. I've just always been around. Well, you'd know that wasn't true. There had to be a time I was born. Uh, there, uh, my life had to start somewhere. And a Christian, nobody can be a Christian their whole life. At some point, like Jesus told Nicodemus, 
You're a religious man, but you must be born again. And can I tell you, a birth, I went to a few of them, witnessed a few of them, a birth is a traumatic event. It is a, in a, in a time you can point back to that that, was, that happened. And so we need to understand as far as salvation goes, there has to be a time we can point to. It doesn't have to know the date or what, the age you were, whatever. There has to be a time to point to when you say, I realize I'm unable and I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can say that today. Now, let's move quickly. Uh, the preservation of God's word. Look at verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. This is an amazing verse. The smallest letter in the Hebrew language is the yod. Actually, it's not really a letter. It looks more like an apostrophe uh, when you write. There's approximately 66,402 jots in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, the, t uh, the tittle in the Hebrew language is an extended horn. It's kind of a little extension that it distinguishes letters from similar letters. Let me give you an example in English. If you draw an F and then you add a tittle, it turns it into an E. That's the closest thing we can say in the English language. Or if you draw a P, okay, and then you add that little tittle or that little tail, now you have an R. And I don't think we have to explain too much to understand. This can be very important. That one little line can make a big difference. Imagine you were in the midst of a bad drought and your crops were doing horribly because you desperately needed rain. And so you're writing out your prayer list and you say, and you write out, Lord, give me rain. But instead of rain, you forgot the little tittle and instead your prayer list says, Lord, give me pain. All right, We understand there's a big difference, isn't there? And Jesus said not one jot, not one tittle will fail in the Word of God. That's an amazing promise. And so we have that promise here today. Jesus is teaching here the immunability of the Word of God. Nothing will stop the Word of God from being fulfilled. Uh, Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Isaiah 48, the grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of my God shall stand forever. No book has been as attacked as this book right here, and yet it stands strong through the centuries. I've told you the story before, but French philosopher Voltaire hated the Bible, hated uh, Christianity, and he wanted to destroy the word of God. He said it took 12 men to start Christianity. It's going to take one man to stop it, and that's going to be me. He said that after he died... A uh, hundred years after his death, he said, there won't be anybody living the Bible. The only Bible you would be able to find would be in a museum. Well, he did die. A hundred years passed, and God got the last laugh because Voltaire's house had been bought out by the Geneva Bible Society, and it stored copies of the Bible for distribution all over the world. Hey, God's word will go on. Voltaire was wrong. Jesus was not. And then we have the performance of God's commands. While we're disobedient, uh, when we're disobedient to God's commands, we reveal our rebellion. Uh, we appear on the outside even sometimes to be obeying God while our heart can be defiled. That's why the principle of grace goes far beyond the law because you can obey the law and, and most of that is external. But the principle of grace that Jesus gives are internal things. You see, that makes a big difference. It goes beyond the law. The law says thou shalt not kill, as we mentioned just a minute ago. That's pretty universally obeyed. But grace says, thou shalt not hate. How many have a problem with hate? Go ahead and elbow your neighbor. I think he's talking about you. I am. Yeah, talking about me too. We all deal with this, don't we? We all have deal with 
uh, hatred of others. And we have to deal, uh, we have to realize that grace takes us further than the law does. It's important to obey the moral aspects of the law. Now, and then it's interesting here, Jesus also kind of gives us a pattern of rebellion. Look at verse 19. Uh, let me go back to where I was in uh, Matthew uh, 5, 19 here. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so. So, gives us this pattern. We often start with small sins, least commandments. Our sin starts with small seeds, not towering trees. Bad habits starts with little transgressions. Sin gets its foot in the door that way into our lives. When you start breaking the least commandments, that will lead you to breaking commandments with much greater consequences attached to them. Years ago, I read a story about an old hillbilly. Over a hundred years ago, he lived in the hills, and he had never seen modern conveniences. And he came across a strange set of tracks. He was a tracker, but he had never seen tracks like this. There were two parallel lines that went as long as this, as far as the eye could see. And while he was standing there trying to figure out what kind of track this was, he heard a <laughs> behind him, and he was hit by a train. He lay there unconscious, and a passerby came to and picked him up and took him to his home and, and uh, tried to take care for him. And as the old hillbilly was coming to, uh, the man decided to make him a cup of tea to help him uh, kind of recuperate. And all of a sudden, the teapot started hissing. That old hillbilly jumped up, picked up a two by four, and started smashing that teapot to bits. And he says, You've got to be careful with these things. They are to be killers. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful with little sins. They grow up to be killers. They'll destroy you in the end. Destroy you in the end. Those who are those who are led by others, led by others. Here it says there's a special special really put on this for those who who go against the commandments. The commandments do not only do that, and shall teach and shall teach men so take others with others with them. What a what a tragedy that tragedy that is. And then the precedent of entering God's kingdom, verse 24, I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus states the requirement for heaven. And here's interesting. Listen, this, this, is, this is big. Again, he's raising the standard. You see, religion had one standard, and Jesus is going to raise the standard because that's what grace always does. He says, except you are better than the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not going to get to heaven. Wherever Jesus went, he always raised the standards. He makes it clear that righteousness is absolutely necessary to enter the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to realize that our righteousness, he shows us it can't do it. The law teaches us our righteousness can't do it. And he specifically said that their righteousness had to be greater or exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, these words would have shocked the listeners. And again, we look at the Pharisees a lot different than they did. But the Pharisees were considered the absolute unreachable pinnacle of righteousness in those days. In fact, there was a proverb that went among the Jews that said, if but two men were to enter heaven, the one would be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. And Jesus shot that right down when he said, your righteousness has to exceed them before you even have a chance. And again, it's not talking about how we have to live good lives, it's showing us that we can't live good enough lives. We can't obey enough law. We can't do enough good deeds uh, to get to heaven. We can't. We're unable to. The law teaches us that. That's the law acting as our schoolmaster. Now, today we know that the Pharisees were in, <laughs> most of them were big old hypocrites. Jesus called them out. 
But Jesus is not praising them here. Rather, he's using, uh, he's, he's, he's using this example to sh- in how the people viewed them and showing them this fact. He's showing them the best examples of righteousness they can think of and say, even if you're better than them, it's still not good enough. The best of men are not good enough for heaven. Isaiah emphasized this in chapter 64, verse 6, but we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousness are as filthy rag. Not our unrighteousness, all our righteousness. The best that you have to offer is as filthy rags to God compared to His holiness. We all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. These, this forces us. Don't miss this. This then forces us. We realize you have to be righteous to go to heaven. And the best I have to offer is still filthy rags to God. So this forces us to look outside of ourselves for righteousness that we can't produce ourselves. It forces us to look to Christ. That's why the law existed, to push us toward Christ. I have to have righteousness. I can't have enough righteousness. I need someone who has enough for me. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where putting our faith in Him uh, is how we reach heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The absoluteness of the statement uh, found here uh, in, in the Bible when it says that you shall in no case, this is a double negative in the Greek language, in the English negative uh, language, a double negative really cancels out the negative. We have rules about that. However, in the Greek language, it's different. A double negative means an emphatic negative. Uh, this is a absolute and permanent. It makes it secure. There's some great places in Scripture. I, I can't, I'm not going to give you a bunch of them, but there's a, where double negatives are there. Uh, there's uh, John 6:37, as the Father hath given them to me. In him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's a double negative there. It doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter what he's done or what she's done. I won't reject them if they come to me. That's a double negative I like. Amen? And then there's one in John 10, 28. And I will give them the eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. There was a double, uh, the word never in that verse comes from a double negative. No one will be lost once I have them. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are born again into the family of God. And you can die, but you can't be unborn. Amen? Because you're forever His child. So, it's an absolute fact that unless your righteousness exceeds the best of men, you'll never get to heaven. No one gets into heaven on their own works, on their own merits, or their own deeds. And how do we know that? How do we know that we're not good enough? The law tells us that. The law makes it so clear. We get that from our schoolmaster. The sterile spoon of the law shows us that we are filthy, and we're filthy from within to without. And we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the one who came to fulfill that law. Thank God for the one that took our place. Only with the righteousness of Jesus Christ do we have a chance to live as children of God and gain heaven one day. That righteousness is made available as God's free gift. I've used several times the penalty for sin in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Let me finish that verse now. This is exciting. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that verse is telling us what you can't earn, He's willing to give to you. He died on the cross so that He might make that available for everyone if they simply ask, Romans 10.9, If you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. What a blessing. This 
This is the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. Not mine, not yours. It's the righteousness of Christ that he's willing to, to impute to me. That's the righteousness that's better than the Pharisees and the scribes ever hoped to be. That's good stuff because every one of us are lawbreakers. Every one of us. If you're in here today and you're under the sound of my voice or even online listening, you are a lawbreaker. I can promise you. Say, I don't know if I'm a lawbreaker. Ask your wife. She'll tell you. You're a lawbreaker. And ask your husband. He'll tell you. You're a lawbreaker. And if you're a child, we know you're a lawbreaker. Amen. We're all lawbreakers. But we're not all righteous. Only those who come to Christ are righteous. Then you can be a righteous lawbreaker. But if you come, if you don't come to Christ and you trust in your own goodness and your own good works and you, you go, you just trust that hope. Well, I hope I'll go to heaven. I, 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 I plan to. If you trust yourself or your heritage or where you came from or your name or who your parents were or the fact that you're baptized as a baby. Listen, babies can't, shouldn't be baptized because they, they can't repent. Babies can't even pent, much less repent. Amen. And so th- th- this, this does you no good. Because baptism comes after salvation. And so uh, when you put your faith in those type of things, you, you won't be called righteous. The law shows us those things. We can't do enough to be good enough to gain heaven. But then along comes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ made freely available to anyone who will reach up and receive it. I'm asking you today, have you received it? Have you received his gift of salvation? You already are a lawbreaker. We've established that. All of us are lawbreakers. Are you righteous? Because not everyone is a righteous lawbreaker. You can be today, though. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I'd like to ask that simple question today. There's nobody looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. I would simply like to pray for you. But if you're today, would you be able to say, Preacher, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I am a righteous. I know I'm a lawbreaker. I think we can all agree with that. But I'm not sure if I'm a righteous lawbreaker. I don't know if something happened to me right now and I stopped breathing. I don't know where I'd be. I'm not sure I'd be in heaven. I hope I'd be, but I don't know for sure. The Bible says these things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. But I'm not sure. I don't know. Would you slip up your hand and let me pray for you? I just want to lift you up. I see that hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? Oh, listen, friend. I see that hand as well. You can know that today. In a moment, she's going to begin to play the piano, and we're going to have heads bowed, eyes closed. Nobody's going to be looking around. I'm going to ask you today, friend, take that step. Come forward. Meet me at the altar here. Let me give you to somebody who can take a Bible and show you how you can know. Because, friend, listen, that'll be the most important decision you'll ever make in your life, to know that you're going to heaven, to know that you are, yes, a lawbreaker, but now you can be declared righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Oh, listen, friend, don't leave today without settling that. What about you, dear Christian? Has God spoken to your heart today too? Has 